So this morning we are in week four of our sermon series called An Apostle's Epistles. If you've been with us for the past several weeks, we've been uh, studying, we've been having sermons on each of Paul's letters to the different churches that he founded. Also, some of them are churches that he didn't actually found, but that maybe his own disciples had founded. So if you've been here, we've, we've had a message on Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians for the past three weeks. This morning, I'm going to be speaking on the letter to the Colossians, and next week, Pastor Dave will be wrapping it up with a lesson on the letters to the Thessalonians. But for today, as we're in Colossians, this is a letter written to a church in Colossae. Colossae was a, a town actually founded by uh, one of Paul's followers. And this letter, he's writing to that church while he's in prison, really awaiting his death in, in Rome, is what most of the scholars think. But hear these words from Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, going through verse 10. He writes, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So let me start by asking a question. Who in this room remembers the Builders Square home improvement warehouse, home improvement store, that about 30 years ago was down on Manchester Road in Manchester? Does anybody remember that store? All right, some of you have been around a while, some of you actually don't. So, all right. So 30 years ago, when Karen and I first came to St. Louis, it was 1988, we came here from Metro Atlanta. And in 1988 in Metro Atlanta, this big new concept called the Big Box Hardware Store was pretty brand new. Home Depot was actually founded in Marietta, Georgia, the town I lived in down there at that time. So when I came up here, transferred, I, I had been working at Lockheed down there, came up here to work for McDonnell Douglas. There's no such thing around. And I'm looking around and, and there isn't anything. So I end up doing all that kind of shopping at either the hardware department at Sears, maybe the Sears hardware store, they had a separate store. Maybe if you really go back, does anybody remember the Do-It centers, the Do-It hardware centers? Okay, I'm getting a few, yeah, yeah. All right, so maybe you'd go to a Do-It center. All right, so all of a sudden, one day the Builder's Square got built and it was huge and it was awesome and it seemed like it had everything. It was bright and it was wonderful. So I started going to the Builder Square, it reminded me of Georgia. It was great, we have this big store. But a couple of years later, almost right across the street, anybody remember what they built? They built an HQ. Oh my gosh, HQ was amazing. And HQ was amazing partly as a dad with young kids, because do you remember? In the front of the store, they had a play place where you could drop off your kids for supervised play while you went and did your shopping, check out and pick them up on the way back out. It was amazing. So that was it for Builder Square. I mean, it was like HQ, right? For a little while, and then they built the Lowe's. Well, my dad had Lowe's back in my hometown in West Virginia and he talked about how awesome the Lowe's was. So I started going to Lowe's for a little while, then Home Depot made it out of the South. 
up here to Missouri and they built a Home Depot and it was wonderful and because it was new and because I was nostalgic, I started going to Home Depot instead. So, what's the point of this? There just seems to be something inside of us, doesn't there, that just always makes an assumption that newer is better, that bigger is gonna be better, that the next great idea we encounter is better than what we had before. And we know it's not even just home improvement stores, right? I mean, there's a reason Chesterfield Mall is this big empty shell. Have you been in there lately? It's just a big empty shell and it's not just that. I mean, it's, it's department stores and gas stations and restaurants, car dealerships. Right? We can think back all kind of things that used to be there that aren't there anymore. It's the same reason I'm on like the fourth or fifth version of my cell phone. The fourth or fifth probably TV I've had since I got married. And probably the same reason that I really want a new truck. Even though the 2005 model I drive runs perfectly fine. So that's probably not happening either. But there's just something that seems to be inside of us that thinks that what we have now has to be able to be improved upon. A part of us that really doesn't want to have anything to do with what might be obsolete or what might be going out of fashion. And I think it's really important for us to recognize that part of us, that, that thing that is there inside of us. It's part of our nature because, folks, it applies equally to our faith lives. And we need to know that. It doesn't matter if we've been part of the church since we were infants, it doesn't matter if we're new to our faith, there's something inside us that's gonna continually nag at us, continually pick at us, trying to convince us to check out the next thing that's gonna promise to take our spirituality to the next level, or maybe even something that's gonna to try to convince our intellects that religion is something we've kind of come above the need for, that, that maybe religion really is just no more than the opiate of the masses, which is what Karl Marx called it. Maybe, maybe we just aren't that confident about our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ, and, and maybe we start to think there are other things out there, things we need to do to, to pick that up, to make our relationship with God more secure. And so we go about trying to gain more knowledge from different places and maybe even just behaving in ways that we think are more and more religious. Now, when I was in seminary, I read this book. It was a book that was required reading. It was called Spiritual Care. And this book had a very interesting story in it about the pastor who wrote the book going to a woman in her congregation and to her house to pray. She invited her to come over to her house to pray. And of course she said, yes, I'd love to come to pray with you. And she gets to the house and the house is not only full of, of Christian symbols and artwork and crosses, but as the pastor arrived and looked around, there are statues of Buddha. There are statues of Hindu gods. There are pyramids. There are crystals. There's all these other kind of spirituality things around. And when the pastor kind of calmly, you know, asked her, so what's going on with that? This woman said, I guess I've just always been someone to hedge my bets. <laughs> well, all right. Every time this woman heard or read about another path to a heightened spirituality, she just kind of added that in to the practices she was already doing, seeking greater and greater, I'd say spiritual power, but also greater and greater assurance that she was doing everything she could 
to have this connection with God that she so, so wanted to have. But at the other end of the spectrum, all right, at the other end of the spectrum, I've known several adults in my life. I've had several adult friends. I know a lot of college students who've fallen away from their Christian faith. And they've fallen away not to pursue other religious paths, not to seek greater spiritual power, but because they've been convinced that the whole concept of spirituality, the whole concept of religion, any religion, is anti-intellectual at best and maybe even harmful and destructive at worst. They've become convinced, right, that true enlightenment, real truth, lies in the rejection of any concept of God whatsoever in favor of a pure kind of materialism that only believes in anything it can actually observe with the senses. So what I find fascinating when we read this, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae is we immediately see these kind of temptations to add something, to add something else to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's nothing new. It's been going on since the beginning. Now, the Christians at Colossae were under constant pressure from other religions, from other secular philosophies, to seek something beyond what they already had in Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to these Christians, he writes to them to encourage them to hold on to their faith in Christ. He writes this, as we read, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. See, Paul was seriously concerned, seriously concerned about the threat that these other ideas, these other philosophies posed to this Christian church in Colossae. And when he uses this language of being taken captive, don't allow these things to take you captive. He's actually using these Greek words that we don't really catch the nuance of. They convey the idea of, of wartime, of actually being kidnapped, tied up, and carried away as the spoils of war. That's the kind of language he's using here. So in Colossae, one of the philosophies that was rampant was this belief that you could elevate your spiritual consciousness so that you could ascend into the heavens where you could worship angels, where you could worship God with the angels, where you could sing praises to God and to the angels in their direct presence. And if you couldn't testify to that kind of a spiritual experience, it meant you were spiritually inferior. Your faith was suspect. It meant you never really, truly participated in the true worship of God. And the way they said to achieve this spiritual enlightenment was through self-flagellation. Leather whips that you would take and beat yourself with all over your body to whip yourself, literally, into an out-of-body experience where you could go into the heavens and worship with God with the angels. 
And so because these new Christians in Colossae, I mean, they did, they wanted a deeper experience of God. They wanted a, 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 a true communion with God because they wanted that. They were very strongly tempted by these people promoting these ideas to join them. They wanted the depth of a relationship with God. And so Paul writes some very strong words to them. This is what he writes. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. They look like they are wise with this self-made religion and their self-denial by the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value. See, so again, I think here, again, we see just how concerned Paul really is about the dangers, the dangers of this teaching. He says that those who are promoting these, this false kind of spirituality are actually in a position, the language he uses is, to disqualify you for the prize, to disqualify you for the prize. What he's saying is they actually have the potential to drag you away, to tie you up and drag you away from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul will do anything, anything to prevent that from happening. These other ideas, these other philosophies, they might look good, they might sound logical, they might be very attractive, they might seem like they're worth checking out. But in fact, Paul says, they're not only worthless, they're actually dangerous. So if Paul's letter to the Colossians could be summed up in one sentence, this would be the sentence. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You don't need to look anywhere else. You don't need to find some special secret knowledge hidden in some other philosophy or religion. You don't need to go after some mind-blowing, out-of-body experience. You don't need anything beyond the faith in Jesus Christ that you were taught because Jesus is enough. And I think this is a lesson every Christian in every time and every place needs to have firmly at the root of their faith, firmly at the root of their faith for the reasons I talked about at the beginning of the sermon today, because there really is something inside all of us that constantly thinks maybe there's something better. Maybe there's something better out there. Maybe, you know, I should check out what's next. Maybe I should look at what everybody else is doing. Maybe there really is a way to a better and more heightened spirituality. Or maybe tempted to listen to the voices that say the truth, the real truth, doesn't even involve a belief in God or a faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you, and Paul writes this letter 2,000 years ago to the church in Colossae to tell them, Jesus is enough. But you might ask, why? And Paul was a smart enough guy to know that the people in Colossae might ask, why? Why is Jesus enough? There's lots of other neat ideas out there. Why is Jesus enough? Well, Paul says Jesus is enough for one simple reason, because of who Jesus is is. Jesus is enough because of who Jesus is. He writes this beautiful language at the beginning of his letter to the Colossians to kind of introduce it with this idea. He writes, he, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is enough because Jesus is the source of everything. And that puts him over everything. The bottom line is Jesus is enough because Jesus is the incarnation of God himself. Now, if Jesus isn't God in the flesh, if Jesus is just one more good human teacher, if, if Jesus is just one more good philosopher, well, it all falls apart, right? I mean, in that case, there might be, there might be other spiritual paths, other philosophies of ideas that could take us to a closer relationship with God, something that might give us a better grasp on real ultimate truth. But if Jesus is God, if Jesus is the creator of all things, then the only place to find the totality of the wisdom and the knowledge and the fullness of God, the only place to find that is in Jesus. The only place to find the totality of the wisdom, the knowledge, the fullness of reality itself is in Jesus. I mean, that's why Jesus can make an audacious claim like, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the truth, and I am the life. That doesn't mean you can't learn anything about God anywhere else. If Jesus, as creator, created everything, then everything reflects a little bit of who Jesus is, of who God is. It simply means that the fullness of God is only found in Jesus Christ. The only place you have access to the fullness, the totality of God, is in Jesus. When we are in Jesus, we don't have any need of anything else. Hear what Paul writes again, why this is true. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who's the head over every power and authority. And that's interesting, right? So it's not only that Jesus is enough, because Jesus, the fullness of God lives in Jesus. It's also that Jesus is enough because you, he says, have been given fullness in Christ. Because we've been united with Christ in our baptism. All, all of that fullness of wisdom and truth becomes available to us as well. It's available to all of us right here, right now. You don't need to go off and seek it anywhere else because real truth, ultimate truth is only known in relationship to Jesus Christ. Paul also writes this, interesting language. Your life 
is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Each and every one of us, each and every one of our Christian lives is hidden with Christ in God. So if you think about what that means, right? I mean, that means that each and every one of our own unique, individual, personal stories of relationship with Jesus Christ contributes to a full understanding of Jesus Christ. And I think that's the key, folks. That's the key to the real yearning we have inside of us for what's next, for something deeper, for a greater spirituality or a greater knowledge. We don't find it in the next philosophy or the next religion or the next path to spiritual enlightenment. We find it in the sharing of our individual, unique, and personal experiences of Jesus Christ with each other. The greater knowledge we seek is found in other Christians and in their stories. Your story affects my story and my understanding of God. And I hope that my experience of Christ, my story, impacts your story, and so on and so on. The path to a deeper relationship with God, the way to fulfill this longing we have for more wisdom, for more knowledge, for more spiritual depth, it's right here. It's literally right here in Christ, in this room, in the body of Christ, gathered together. Folks, that's, that's why. It's a huge part of why we so strongly encourage you to find a small group, to find a Bible study, to find a Sunday school class, to participate in where you can share your wisdom of Christ with each other and find that depth that you are looking for. And I think that's also why Paul closes his letter to the Colossians, his teaching with these words of advice. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So what Paul's saying there is that ultimate truth, the word of Christ, will dwell in each one of us more and more richly as we teach each other, as we teach each other, as we admonish each other, and as we share with each other the wisdom we've gained through our personal and unique relationship with Christ. And what we're going to learn, I promise you, what we'll learn if we just follow that advice is that Jesus really is enough. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.